been Noah, Bloomer, Wisconsin. How many of you have been to Bloomer? One, two, three, oh, several. Well, you were born there, Paul, so of course you spent a number of years there. Yeah, Bloomer, Wisconsin, a beautiful place. Paul was born there and uh, went on to go to school at UW-Eau Claire, majoring in business administration. From there, he felt the calling to uh, go to Denver Seminary, where he studied uh, and received his divinity degree. And now he's been serving at Gateway Church, a church that's very close to all of us here at High Point, for nine months. And he's going to be leading us in study of God's Word today. Let's give a great High Point welcome to Paul Lundgren from Gateway Church here in Madison. Greg, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me here today. Um, I am filling in for Nick while he uh, sacrifices for the Lord down in Florida. Um, and so I'm here with you today. And this is just a great opportunity I just, for me to meet another part of the body here in Madison. And so uh, thank you for having me. Well, today we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 40. Genesis 40, this is part of a larger series that uh, we've been doing at Gateway Community Church. Um, and so we'll fill you in on some of the context later. But before we get to that, um, I grew up in a family with four boys, just brothers, no sisters. And because of that, my poor mom had to endure a lot of guy movies, um, <laughs> A lot of movies that involved fighting and sports and things like that, and movies where by the end of it, me and my brothers were all kicking and punching each other and doing what all boys should, really. Um, and one of those movies that we loved was The Karate Kid. How many of you have seen The Karate Kid? Good, as you all should. Um, a movie that came out in the mid-80s, and, and the premise of the movie, it's been a while since I've seen it, but the idea is, is that this boy named Daniel this Italian kid from Jersey, he moves across the country to California. And so here's this, uh, this kid from New Jersey with this thick accent amongst all of these, you know, blonde-haired, blue-eyed surfer dudes in California. And so in school, he sticks out like a sore thumb. And he begins to get picked on while he's there. And specifically, there's these, this group of boys who are all picking on him. And they all go to the same karate dojo, I guess you would call it. They all have the same karate instructor. He's a real rough, brutal guy. And so they decide that they are going to pick on Daniel, and he gets himself out of a few scrapes. He talks himself out of them, but sooner or later, he finds himself in an alley with all of these boys surrounding him, taking turns, just beating the tar out of him. And he hits the ground, and just before he blacks out, he sees Mr. Miyagi this little Asian man come to his defense and takes on this whole gang of boys all by himself and saves him. And so Daniel, he asks Mr. Miyagi if he can teach him karate so that he can defend himself in, further, in, in situations like that in the future. And so Mr. Miyagi agrees. But when he comes to get his karate lesson, he gets there and the first thing Mr. Miyagi tells him to do is to go out and wax his car. And he teaches him, you know, you put the wax on, you take the wax off, that kind of thing. And so Daniel, he's confused, but he does it. 
He comes back thinking, well, now I'm going to get my karate lesson. Well, now Mr. Miyagi told him, go out and paint my fence. And so he's out there, he's painting the fence, and this goes on for quite a while, and Daniel's getting incredibly frustrated. He's asking, what in the world does this have to do with karate? I'm wasting my time here. You're supposed to be teaching me something. But what he finds out when it is time for him to learn karate is that all of the waxing that he did, all of the painting that he did served a purpose. And what Mr. Miyagi was doing is he was teaching him to deflect the blows of his opponent. He's teaching him to block those kicks and punches that would come at him. And so that time of waiting, that time of working, waxing and painting, it wasn't fruitless. In fact, it was incredibly important to his development in karate. And in the same way, Joseph has been going through some things and he has no idea what it's all about. He's been in prison. He's been uh, a slave. And at that time, he's probably, at this time, he's probably wondering, God, what in the world are you doing? I thought you had some great plans for me. I thought I was going to be in a position of power. And look where I am, God. What are you doing? What's the holdup? And that's what we're going to see today. That's where Joseph's at right now in Genesis chapter 40. Wondering, what in the world are you doing, God? So let's look at our passage, starting with verses 1 through 4. This really sets the scene for the rest of the story. It says, Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And so here we get the scene. They're in prison, but before we get to that, we need to ask the question, how did they get into prison in the first place? Because there's a whole lot of context that all of you need to be caught up on. Um, when I was going through this as a series, of course, people got it week by week, but I'm just going to give you a brief summary of what we had been talking about at Gateway for the last few weeks. And really, the start of the, uh, the whole section on Joseph and his brothers starts in Genesis chapter 33. And so if you want to turn there, go to Genesis 33. I don't believe it's on the PowerPoint. But what we see here, at this time, Jacob, Joseph's father, thinks that his brother Esau is about to attack him. He's heard this report that Esau has 400 men with him and that they are heading his way. And the last time Jacob talked to Esau, Esau wanted him dead. And so the natural conclusion is, is he's coming to get us. And he's going to wipe me and my entire family out. And so with this in mind, look at what Jacob does as Esau approaches. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 33. It says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last 
of all. And so what we see here is that Jacob was basically ranking his children in order of importance. And what he was doing is, is he's saying, hopefully when Esau comes to attack us, while Esau and his men are busy killing the servants and their children and Leah and her children, hopefully Joseph and Rachel will get away. He puts his own kids on the front lines in the hopes that Joseph will escape. Now don't think for a second that his other sons wouldn't have understood what was going on here. They would have understood that compared to Joseph, they would have said, I am expendable. Look how much my father must love Joseph than he loves me. And so this was the first instance of favoritism between Jacob's sons. Jacob showed he loved Joseph more than the rest. And this only gets exacerbated later in the story in Genesis 37. Here we see that Joseph is given a fancy, ornate robe. We call it the multicolor robe, usually, or the technicolor dream coat, if you will. Um, but we don't exactly know what this robe looked like, but whatever it looked like, it was designed to set Joseph apart from his brothers to show that he was special over all the rest. And so what this robe was is it was a reminder that dad loves him more than he loves us. A constant reminder that they were inadequate. And so it's no wonder that these brothers hated Joseph. He had what they desperately wanted. They wanted their father's approval. They wanted their father's love. And Joseph was the only one who had it. What a terrible thing to do to your kids. But that's what Jacob did. And he went even further than this. We see in Genesis 37 also that he basically made Joseph, who was the youngest of, or the second youngest of all his sons, he made him their supervisor. Made him, the rest of his brothers, supervisor. Here these are grown men being managed by a 17-year-old. And so while they were out with the sheep, he would send Joseph to go check up on them, to see how they were doing, and then to bring a report back to him. And we're told at one point that Joseph brought a bad report about his brothers to his father. Now, in the best case scenario here, we see that Joseph is a snitch, right? He's a tattletale. That's the best case scenario. But what it actually seems is he was even worse than that in this instance. Because every time that that word for report is used, it says he gave a bad report to his father. Every time that word report is used in the Old Testament, it's used to talk about a false report, a misleading report. And so what it seems is that Joseph either made something up or, or greatly exaggerated what his brothers did to his father in order to make them look as bad as possible in their father's eyes. And so it wasn't enough for Joseph that he was dad's favorite, that he had this special robe. But he wanted to make sure that those brothers didn't have a chance at their father's approval and love. Now this shouldn't be entirely surprising. He's just a 17-year-old kid. I think of myself as a 17-year-old. I wasn't the nicest guy. I was rather, probably rather arrogant and boastful. And that's kind of what we see from Joseph right now. Just a 17-year-old kid, rather immature. And well, the brothers, three times in Genesis 37, were told they hated him even more. Their hatred for him just grew until it was basically overboiling and 
finally, when, when their father sent him to check up on the brothers one more time, they said, this is our chance. Let's get rid of him. And so when Joseph got closer, they grabbed him and they threw him into a pit. What they actually said was, here comes this dreamer. Because the worst thing that Joseph did to them is he told them about two different dreams that he had had. And in both of those dreams, through some symbolism, his brothers are depicted as bowing down to him. This was the last thing that the brothers would ever want to do to Joseph. That's how much they hated him. But when he had these dreams, which were undoubtedly from the Lord, the very first thing he does is he goes and tells them, you're going to one day bow down to me. My dreams said so. Nowhere in those dreams do we see God telling Joseph, tell your brothers about this dream, but that's the first thing he does, which angered them even further. And so when he comes up to them, the brothers say, look, here comes this dreamer. Let's get rid of him. Let's kill him and say that some wild animal attacked him. And so he gets closer, they grab hold of him, and they throw him in a well. And they're either going to leave him there to die or they're going to kill him by force until some slave traders come by. And then Judah gets this bright idea. He says, hey guys, let's not, let's not do the wrong thing here. Let's be, let's be nice to Joseph. Let's not kill him. Let's not shed any blood. Let's just sell him into slavery. What, what good guys we are. <laughs> you, that's the idea you get from Judah as he says this. How nice of us. We're just going to sell him into slavery rather than kill him. And so they do that and they get a tidy sum for Joseph. And he gets taken down to Egypt as a slave and he is bought there by Potiphar, who is a high up government official there in Egypt. And over time, it's shown that Joseph is successful in everything he does. Everything he touches turns to gold and Potiphar notices this. And so he makes him in charge of his entire house. And really, it seems like, all things considered, he's doing great. I mean, he's a slave, so that's pretty bad, but he's the head of the slaves at least, so that's, that's a, one feather in your cap, I guess. And so everything's going great, but there's one downfall for Joseph, and that's his good looks. He's just an incredibly handsome man. We're told he's handsome in form and appearance. If you need a reference point, just think of me uh, with a little better tan or something like that. Um, <laughs> very good-looking man. And because he was so good-looking, so good Potiphar's wife took notice of him. And Potiphar's wife said, I got to have him for myself. And so she went to him and she commanded him, lie with me. Sleep with me. This wasn't a request. She was saying, you're a slave. You have to do what I say. Come and lie with me. But Joseph refused. He showed his strong character, and he refused time and time again. Day after day, she commanded him to lie with her, and he refused. And finally, she got so fed up with his refusals that she accused him of trying to rape her, and she had him thrown into prison. And that's where we start today. What a soap opera, huh? <laughs> don't, don't ever let anybody tell you that the Bible is boring. 
I mean, this is an incredible piece of literature right here, and it's made even more credible by the fact that it's true, that this actually happened to someone. What a story. And so let's look more into this story in Genesis chapter 40 right now. Like I said, the first four verses, they set the scene. And we start off by the author telling us sometime after this. Now, that's an undefinite amount of time. We don't know exactly how much time he's been in prison, but what we do know is that Joseph is about 27 or 28 years old at this time. And so between being a slave and a prisoner, he has not been free for over a decade. Over a decade now, he's been a slave or a prisoner. Over a decade, he has been waiting and serving others. And at this point in our story, we see that Joseph is chosen to attend to the needs of two high-up officials from Pharaoh's house, these two guys who were thrown into prison, the chief baker and the chief cupbearer. And we're told that Pharaoh was angry with them for some reason. We don't know what it is, but it's not a great leap to say it must have been something food or drink related. It must have had something to do with that. This is the baker and the cupbearer, right? Maybe, maybe Pharaoh got sick after a meal and blamed it on them. Maybe he was poisoned unsuccessfully and he wasn't sure which of them did it. But whatever it is, Pharaoh is ticked and they're in prison until he figures out what happens, what's ha- what happened. But apparently they were in a white-collar section of the prison, um, one of those prison resorts or something like that, because Joseph was chosen to attend to their needs. He was to serve them during their time in prison. And so that's the scene of our, of our story. Those are our characters. That's where we're at. Joseph's about 27, 28 years old, and he's talking to the, these high-up officials in Pharaoh's house, the baker and the cupbearer. But then in verses 5 through 8, we see that the story really takes off. Look at what it says in these verses. It says, And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Now before we get into the interpretations in verse 9, there are a number of, of subtle yet very significant things that are happening in this piece of the conversation between Joseph and these chiefs of Pharaoh's house. And the first thing that we see is that Joseph, during his time in prison and as a slave, he's developed a certain amount of empathy and sensitivity during this time. He goes in, he sees that the the chiefs are sad, and he asks them, what's wrong? Why are your faces downcast? Now, this might seem like a really small thing, but what we need to remember is that Joseph has now been a prisoner and a slave for over 10 years. And often when we go through something hard like that, we have no time for the complaints of other people. We say, you know what? You think you got it bad? I have it so much worse than you. I don't even want to hear your whining and your complaints. 
And actually what happens for us is sometimes we get to become competitive with each other. You ever notice this? We're competitive over whose life is worse, as if there's some sort of prize for having the worst life. But we do this with one another. Um, it, it reminds me of a story that my friend Ryan from Colorado told me. He said he was sitting down to dinner with a few people he didn't know very well, and one of the guys had a number of scars on his face, and so they asked him, asked him how he acquired these scars, and the guy told this amazing story. He said when he was a kid, he was at the zoo, and this tiger either got out or he got into the tiger's cage. I don't remember which, but he's this little boy, and this tiger literally had his mouth clamped on his head. The tiger attacked him and was just grabbing onto him. So all these people are trying to stop this tiger. They must have finally trank- tranquilized it or something because the boy was freed, and he, he needed a lot of stitches, and he needed facial reconstruction surgery, but he was okay. So this is an amazing story, isn't it? But one of the guys at the table said, that's nothing. That's nothing. Two years ago, he says, I was canoeing on a lake and I was playing with my finger in the water and a snapping turtle got this close to biting my finger off. That was it. That was his entire story. But what you can see is the competitive urge in him. He doesn't want to feel sorry for that guy. He wants to say, my situation was so much scarier. My situation was so much worse. And even though we might not be as ridiculous as that guy, we do the same thing. Just thinking of everyday things we do. We hear someone say, man, I'm tired. I only slept five hours last night. We're quick to say, well, I only got four hours. So I'm more tired than you. That's kind of the idea we get. Or, man, I worked so hard last week. I I put in 60 hours. My boss was just making me come in time and time again. And we say, well, I worked 70. 70 hours. So that's 10 more. Um, (laughs) we, We do this with each other. We have this competition. And Joseph, he could have legitimately done this. He could have walked into that prison cell and saw these guys looking sad, and he could have said, what, you've been in here for like a month? Suck it up. Suck it up. I've been in here for years. And you know what? I'm innocent. I didn't do anything wrong. And my own brother sold me into slavery. If you can top that, then I'll listen to your complaints. He could have said that. But he didn't. We see that he cared about these guys. He showed empathy towards these guys. This brother who was incredibly insensitive towards his brothers at all times 10 years ago who rubbed his dreams in his brother's faces, who strutted around in this special robe for years. This brother now cared about other people, cared deeply enough about them that he would ask them, what's wrong, even while he's going through his own hardships? And in the same way, we need to be willing to listen to the the problems of others. When others are going through hard times, we need to listen And we need to do, as Romans 12 says, we need to mourn with those who mourn. No matter what's going on in our lives, no matter how rough things may seem, we need to care enough about each other to take care of one another and to mourn with each other and to listen to one another's problems. Sometimes it's just as easy as going like Joseph and saying, hey, why do you look so sad? Why is your face downcast? What's wrong? and legitimately caring 
about their problems. That's what we're called to do, and that's what Joseph did here. And so the first thing we see is that Joseph has become a more caring man during his time in prison. The second thing that we see is that Joseph has learned to rely on God completely. He is now God-dependent. Look again at what the prisoners say to, to Joseph and his response. After Joseph asked them why they were sad, we're told, they said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. So they've had these dreams and it's made them incredibly sad. And the reason they're sad is that Egyptians put a lot of stock into dreams. They believe that when you fell asleep, that you literally were coming into contact with another world. You were coming into contact with the world of the gods and the world of the dead. And so when they had these dreams, they thought to themselves, the gods are trying to tell us something. But they were sad because they didn't have access to the dream interpreters like they did before. When they lived in Pharaoh's house, when they were serving as his cupbearer and his baker, they could have just gone down to Pharaoh's interpreters and asked them what was wrong and they would have opened up or asked, told them about the dream and they would have opened up their dream books and looked at the different symbols in the dream and said, well, this is probably what it means. But they couldn't do that now. So they were scared. What does this dream mean? They were wondering. Are these dreams telling us we're going to die pretty soon? Are they going to tell us we're being freed? What, what, what is it saying? And so they were anxious. And look at Joseph's response to them, though. Once they describe their problem, Joseph immediately says, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. What we see is that it didn't take Joseph more than two seconds to turn to God for the answer. He immediately was going to turn to God to help him interpret these dreams. And notice he uses the name Elohim. He doesn't, talk, he doesn't refer to the Egyptian gods. This has nothing to do with them. This is my God we're talking about here, he says. The interpretation of this dream belongs to him. And because Joseph turns to God, we know that he is God-dependent. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on, on uh, Genesis he calls this being God-reflexed. His very first instinct is to turn to God. And he points out that it's what we do out of instinct, it's what we do out of reaction and reflex, that is what shows who we are on the inside. And so Joseph was now, because his, his first instinct was to turn to God, he is a man who is dependent on God for everything. That's the kind of man that has been grown during prison. He was this immature kid 10 years ago, but now he's a man who turns to God for everything. Lastly, we see in these verses that despite everything Joseph has been through, he still believes that God's promise to him will come true. Remember that a decade ago he had these dreams that his brothers and his father would bow down to him? He had those dreams, but he could have said, well, look at me now. <laughs> Here I am, I'm in prison. What are the chances that my brothers are ever going to bow down to a prisoner? And when they told him about their dreams, he could have said, dreams clearly don't mean anything because my dreams aren't coming true anytime soon. He could have completely lost hope in those dreams. But what he shows by saying, do not interpretations belong to God, what he shows in that is that he still believes that God is going to remain true to his promise to Joseph. 
He is going to do what he told him he would do 10 years ago. He doesn't see how it could happen now, being that he's in prison, being that he doesn't have any rights, but he knows it's going to happen. And so often I think we allow our own trials, our own troubles, we allow those things to keep us from remembering that God has promised us some pretty amazing things as believers in Jesus Christ. He's promised us all sorts of things and our current circumstances, no matter how bad they look, do not change those promises. He will still do what he has promised us. Look at all these amazing promises he's given us. Hebrews 2.18, God has promised to help us when we're tempted. Luke 12.30-31, he has promised to meet our every need. Not necessarily our wants. He's not going to necessarily make us millionaires. Uh, We're not going to win that million-dollar lottery necessarily. Uh, That just happened. But he's going to meet our needs. We can trust him for that. Matthew 7, 7 through 11, he has promised to listen to and answer our prayers. That's a promise we have from God. No matter what our circumstances look like, he is going to hear our prayers. John 8, 32, he has promised to free us from sin if we put our faith in him. We are free from the sin that that enslaves us and destroys everything it touches and every person it touches. We are free from that sin. Then, of course, we know that we are promised eternal life and freedom from this sin-torn world, this disease and and pain-filled world. It's all going to be put behind us one day when God calls us home. These are all promises we can take to the bank. God is going to keep these promises. And so if you're going through something right now, something that just feels unbearable, you don't know how you're going to get up in the morning sometimes, if you're going through that, just remember all of God's promises to you. Because what you're going through does not change the fact that he's going to keep those promises, that he is going to work mightily on your behalf. You may not see it, you may not even know how it's happened, but he will do it because he always keeps his promises. And so like Joseph, we need to learn to always depend on God, to always turn to him. No matter what we're going through, we can believe that he is with us and that he controls the future. And so in those four verses, verses five through eight, we see Joseph's amazing faith and his amazing character that is developed during his time in prison. He's just grown so much from that 17-year-old boy. But now in these next few verses, starting in verse 9, we're going to see God at work through Joseph interpreting these dreams. And I'm not going to read them because it's a lengthier section, but we'll summarize what happens here to the cupbearer and the baker. And what we see, first of all, is that the chief cupbearer is the first to tell about his dream. And in his dream, basically, he sees this grapevine growing and fast forward. There's three branches on this vine. All of these clusters of grapes grow. And the chief cupbearer, he grabs some of these grapes, he squeezes them into Pharaoh's cup, and he hands the cup to Pharaoh. That's his dream. And immediately, Joseph says, this is the interpretation. Those three branches represent three days, and in three days... Your head will be lifted up, he says, and you will be back in your position with Pharaoh. When he says your head will be lifted up, he's, he's speaking somewhat metaphorically here. He's saying right now you are ashamed, you are downcast, but your head is going to be lifted up. Your dignity is going to be restored to you when you get your position as the cupbearer 
back. And so this was about the best news that the cupbearer could get at this point. He probably was incredibly relieved to hear that he's going back to his old position. And so Joseph, he tries to capitalize on the happiness of the cupbearer. And he says, hey, remember me. When you get out of prison and when you're sitting next to Pharaoh day after day, tell him about me. Tell him what I've done in interpreting this dream or what God has done through me in interpreting this dream so that he can release me because I didn't do anything to deserve this imprisonment. So please, tell him about me. Joseph realizes this is my ticket out. This is my chance. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But after the cupbearer got his news and Joseph asked him, please remember me, we see that the baker decides to tell his dream to Joseph as well. He thought, well, if the cupbearer got good news, there's a pretty good chance that I am as well. And so he tells his dream. And in his dream, he says he's got three baskets on his head. And in the top basket, there's bread and cakes. And these birds keep swooping down and eating the bread and the cakes out of the basket. And so Joseph, he actually starts to interpret this dream in the exact same way as he did for the cupbearer. And he says to them, him, the baskets are three days, and in three days your head will be lifted up. Now for the cupbearer, this was good news. It meant that dignity was going to be restored to him. But Joseph includes two little words here that make all the difference. He says, your head is going to be lifted up from you. <laughs> your head's going to be lifted right off of your body. That's the idea we get here. <laughs> And so Joseph, he kind of puts this cruel twist on it. Some commentators think that because, because of the way he presented it, that perhaps this guy was actually guilty and he was getting his just recompense. I don't know if that's true. But the idea is, is you're, you are going to die in three days. And not only that, but you're just going to be left hanging there. And the birds are going to eat your flesh. This was a fate worse than death. This was like killing him twice. Because what the Egyptians believed is that if you were not properly buried or entombed, your soul would wander forever. And so when he says that Pharaoh is just going to leave your body hanging there for the birds to eat, he's saying you are never going to get any rest. Your soul is going to wander forever. And sure enough, both of these interpretations became true. The cupbearer received his old position back. He was there serving Pharaoh day after day, meal after meal. And the baker was killed and just left hanging there. And so it seems like this is good news, doesn't it? And Joseph would have been very exciting, but, excited, but look at what it says in verse 23. It says, Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. Now just, just imagine being Joseph at this moment. I mean, undoubtedly, the day after the cupbearer was released, he woke up thinking, this is the day I'm going to be released. This is the day all those injustices will be behind me. Finally. But then that day went by and then another. And then a week went by. Then a month. 
And he slowly would have been figuring out, this guy's not coming back for me. This guy has forgotten me altogether. He just used me and threw me away. Left me here to rot. And we're told that for two whole years, two whole years, Joseph waited in prison. Two whole years he waited for this cupbearer to finally get up enough gumption to talk to Pharaoh about him. And you know, I don't think any of us can quite imagine what it would be like to have 13 years of your life stolen from you. From the time he was 17 to the time he was 30, he was either a slave or a prisoner. But that was the situation Joseph was in. And all he could do was wait. And so he did. He waited. This wasn't the life he expected. This was by no means the life he wanted. But it's the life he was given. And so he waited. His entire life was put on pause. And he went through some incredible pain during those 13 years. And actually, these kind of delays and these kind of difficulties, they were commonplace for God's people in Scripture. We see it with Abraham. God promised him that he's going to have a son, and Abraham waited until he was 100 years old to finally have that son that was promised to him. He waited. Moses, he was, he was uh, what, Pharaoh's daughter's adopted son, right? Everything was going well for him. He gets run out of Egypt, and then for years he is the shepherd for his father-in-law, taking care of sheep. He waited years before God sent him back into Egypt to rescue the Israelites. Then with David, we see that David, he was anointed king by Samuel when he was just a boy, long before he actually ever sat on the throne. And during that entire time, he was chased all over the countryside by Saul, who wanted to kill him. And so he waited. Even Jesus waited. He didn't start his ministry till he was 30 years old. And during that time, we're told, he grew in wisdom and stature. He had a time of pause. But what we see in Jesus and what we see in Joseph is that that time of waiting wasn't fruitless. It was during that time that he grew wise. It was during that time that he grew empathetic and caring about others. During that time, he became more God-dependent, and he came to trust in the Lord more and more. All of this happened during the pauses and pain in Joseph's life. And so what we see in all of these cases is that God uses delays and disappointments to develop leaders for their tasks. To, to mold the person into who they need to be to do what God wants them to do. And so if Joseph hadn't gone through this time of pause, gone through this time of pain, we maybe wouldn't know him as the amazing man that we know him as now. In the same way as Joseph, maybe you feel like your life is going nowhere, that nothing's going right. Maybe you're just struggling struggling financially, struggling with health, struggling with your family. Whatever it is you're going through, though, 
Remember that God prepares us in the pauses. And there is a purpose to the pain that you are going through. He's making you into someone who will be able to do great things for him in the future. He is molding you into something that he needs you to be to fit his plan. John Ortberg, he talks about this. And he gives this illustration. He says, imagine you're handed a script of your newborn's child's entire life. Better yet, you're given an eraser and five minutes to edit out whatever you want. You read that she will have a learning disability in grade school. Reading, which comes easily for some kids, will be laborious for her. In high school, she'll make a great circle of friends, then one of them will die of cancer. After high school, she will get, in, she will get into her preferred college, but while there, she will lose a leg in a car accident. Following that, she will go through a difficult depression. A few years later, she'll get a great job, then lose that job in an economic downturn. She'll get married, but then go through the grief of separation. With this script of your child's life and five minutes to edit it, what would you erase? That's his question. Wouldn't you want to erase everything that caused her pain? Wouldn't that be the temptation? Of course it would be. But what we know is that God could do that, couldn't he? He could just erase all of the trials from our lives, but he doesn't. He doesn't do that. And that's because, as Ortberg says, he says, God isn't at work producing the circumstances I want. God is at work in bad circumstances to produce the me that he wants. God is developing us through pain. He's making us into the, the me he wants us to be in order to serve him better. Raymond Edmond, he says it a different way. He says, delay never thwarts God's purposes. It only polishes his instrument. Isn't that great? We may be frustrated by delay. We may be frustrated by difficulties. But it's at that time that God is polishing us. He's making us into the people we need to be to serve him better. And because of all of this, we need to be willing to say, Lord, bring on the challenges. Lord, if it's going to glorify you and if it's going to make me a better person on the other side, then give me a difficulty. Put some pause and delay in my life. In fact, isn't that what Jesus did? Isn't that what he did? He was there in the garden praying before he was crucified knowing exactly what was going to happen to him. And he, he goes down on his knees and he says, Lord, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. If it's possible, don't make me go through this. But then look at what he says. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And that's exactly what we have to say to God when they're in the midst of the trial or when we come up against one soon. Say, God, if it's your will, take this from me. But if not, your will be done. And may you be glorified through this. It's a hard thing to pray. <laughs> it's hard to pray, God, everything I have is yours. Do what you will, 
You're just lending these people and these things to me anyway. And so, Lord, it's all yours. And if you're going to get glory, Lord, take it. Take it. And make me into the person I need to be to serve you better. That's what Joseph did. And that's what we ought to do as well. Let's pray. Lord, we know, even when we can't see it, we know that your will is good, pleasing, and perfect, Lord. And so, Lord, we put ourselves in your hands. And we say, Lord, do what it takes. Do what it takes to make us into people who honor you with our lives. Lord, if there's something we need to go through in order to witness to someone, to share the gospel with them better, Lord, do it. Do it. If there's some way we can expand your gospel and your kingdom here on this earth by going through something tough, then Lord, we subject ourselves to that. And Lord, if anyone right now is going through a trial, Lord, show them the purpose you have for it. Give them an idea of what it is you are preparing them for, Lord, and sustain them through it. Give them courage. Give them strength, Lord, I pray. We need you to be with us, Lord. Just like Joseph had you with him at all times, we need you to be with us, strengthening us and preparing us for life. Thank you, Lord, that you are with us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who indwells us, Lord. That we'll never have to be without you if we have faith in Jesus Christ, if we've accepted his punishment, his death on the cross for us. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for your work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.